You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. What's up, Colorado? It is that time of the month where we sit around, get a bunch of experts in the room, and we talk about stats, trends, what's going on in Colorado, specifically Pueblo, Colorado Springs, and Denver. I have my usual crew here. I have Jenny Springs representing Colorado Springs and Pueblo. I've got Pressed up here with Denver. They're both with Envision Advisors. I got Joe Massey talking long-term finance with Castle and Cook and Travis Beer with Renova Financial talking about direct money financing. So ladies and gentlemen, glad to have you guys here. Thanks for having us. Always great to be here. Yeah. So we know market stuff is going on. I'm gonna start with you, Jenny. Give us the scoop as to what's going on down south from just the market trends, what you're seeing down there. Yeah, so the trends don't really match with kind of the vibe that we're getting in person. Um, So the trends are showing that in terms of all homes for August, um, month over month, we're only down median sales price about 0.4%. Sales are down less than 3%. New listings are up, um, you know, in percentage wise is 13%, but in reality, it's like 200 units. So, um, you know, not a lot is changing from the numbers down here. Um, However, you know, just talking with Leah and, you know, trying to get a grasp on, on what we're seeing down here, it's definitely shifting more towards the buyers, like being able to have a little bit more power now, being able to, you know, ask for concessions, being able to ask for, you know, actually negotiating in inspection items and, you know, things of that nature. So um, definitely interesting uh, dichotomy between the, the numbers and how it feels down here. Now, even over the last, like, I know the market's been gradually this year kind of moving less in the seller's favor, slightly more towards the buyers. Have you felt a bigger shift the last like four weeks or six weeks since we did the last uh, market update? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Really? Can you, okay. Yeah. Preston, move up here. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Jenny. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, like we've, uh, on a listing that we had down here, um, had to go through pretty substantial price cut um, for people to bite on it. Okay. All right, Preston, I'm pivoting to you and the Denver Metro. What's going on up here? Lots of stuff happening up here, Chris. We've got a big increase in inventory. Percentage-wise, you're going to see 94% year over year from where we were at last year, but we're still not at inventory levels from where we were in 2019, which I think is the interesting part. So a lot of headlines surrounding, you know, massive inventory gains and all this kind of stuff, but still, you know, historically not where we should be uh you know for what we have for active listings on the market um you know our last normal august was 2019 we had 9400 active listings right now we're at 6900 so still a little bit of a gap to go to get to a little bit more balanced market but we're definitely seeing an increase you know in inventory up here so one thing we were chatting about right before uh recording was just kind of drawing some parallels to now and 2019 because in 2019 i mean interest rates were I think like low fives to yeah. mid fives for that quarter three, quarter four. Mm-hmm. Inventory is about 3,000 units lower. Uh, but I, we looked at the showing trends before, and the showing trends for Denver are right on pace with 2019. So lots of similarities on there. But I'm, uh, I was expecting inventory to be a little bit higher, just kind of 
you know, best guess last few months. I thought yeah. we'd be trending up more towards like 2019 levels. That's been one of the surprises for me. Yeah, I think one of the things we're seeing is a little bit of a, a rebound and a bounce back with some seasonality, right? And I think we talked about this a little bit last month, but, you know, historically, you know, June, July, August is whenever things kind of start to, you know, they slow down a little bit for the summer and now we'll start to see them pick up. So I would imagine once we head into September and October, we'll probably see a little bit more of an inventory gain in the market just as people re- rebound from summer, kind of get back in the swing of things and, and move on for the rest of the year. So I, I think when, once we start to look at the August numbers, we'll have a pretty good idea of where we're going to be now that we're, you know, back into a, a quote unquote normalized market with some seasonality that we haven't had the last couple of years. Okay. Can I add one thing that you were expecting to see inventory increasing a little bit more rapidly, right? Yep. One thing we touched on, I think it was two months ago, is there's a ton of folks out there that own a home and they say, I have a rate of two and a half percent. I'm never moving. Yep. Right. Now, I don't believe that sentence because people move when they get pregnant, when they get divorced, when they get married, when they get relocated for a job. But in the short to medium term, I do think that that sentence is true. I'm never moving right now. So I think that does delay some of the inventory coming on the market that, boy, we could trade up to this bigger home, but we don't want to give up our 3% rate for a 6% rate. So I think that delays some of the inventory coming on the market. I don't have any stats for that. And I'm curious your guys' opinions, but I think that's part of the lagging of the inventory increase. Do you guys think there's any, because, uh, you know, example, like, you know, uh, you, me and Lon were at an event this weekend. We talked to a client there he has a you know four bedroom, three bathroom house in Aurora. Mm-hmm. Moving out, I was debating keeping his rental versus selling it. Mm-hmm. Numbers make sense to sell it and move the equity elsewhere. But one of the things that we recommend is like, hey, since he has time to float some properties, was hey, wait until the springtime uh, to get you know the highest demand. Then, do you think there's uh, many investors, many people out there, just kind of like holding tight to the springtime? As far as relisting their investment properties? Uh, just to list in general, like uh, they're holding off like, hey, he doesn't want to keep it long term, but rather than selling now, he's in position for what's that four or five months away. It's not a big deal to him to, to have both properties, but he's looking out for a few months for that. I wonder if there's any, how many people actually trying to time the market that way since we have seasonality get in the market. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think what where maybe Joe was headed or, or maybe wasn't, but what I was picking up on was um, as the listings are coming down from people who maybe don't want to sell because they have that low rate, we're seeing listings kind of come down overall due to seasonality. Will there be, will the seasonality drive us to lower inventory in the, the spring, which then could create a tad bit more competition? When I was looking through these numbers, uh, as Preston pointed out, the number of listings now versus 2019 that were like roughly 70% of that and I thought, oh, that actually gave me a little bit of uh, relief. I was like, oh, actually, maybe it's not so bad. And then we started talking about interest rates being at that time five, five and a half. So we have less inventory than we did in 2019. We have rates that are within about a point of where they were in 2019. But I think the two key differences are, one we just touched on was there's a ton of people out that are locked out there in two and a half and 3% rates that maybe mathematically don't want to move. But the other piece is that over those two years, values ran up compound 35%. Yeah. Right. So there is quite a bit of difference in purchase price or purchasing power at a slightly higher rate, even if the inventory hasn't got back to where it was. And that's kind of what my takeaway was from from the numbers. Well, and that kind of leads me to an article that I saw yesterday that Lon shared with us here <clears throat> at your castle um, with a lot of these you know, people having these houses and these properties with such low interest rates that rather than selling them moving on, they're just turning them into rentals. They're, you know, unfortunately becoming accidental landlords. Right. Mm-hmm. Because. With rents going up and where they're at now, they're able to cash flow. And rather than you know losing out on the interest rates that they have and they've got a ton of equity in the property, they're just going to turn them into rentals. Now, for people out there, I mean, we all know this. Uh, 
the low interest rate, I think, is can mislead a lot of people because while it's very low, if you're sitting on three hundred, four thousand dollars worth of equity, mm-hmm. yes, you have a low interest rate, but you're earning a lot of times it's like a six, seven, eight, maybe nine percent return on overall equity. How much Nothing does that interest that rate actually cost you? Yeah, exactly. Yep. And that's the perspective. And so if you're out there listening to that, make sure you don't look at the interest rate, actually look at how that property is performing as a you know ROE standpoint. Because that's what I'm so fascinated by here. All these people all the time yep. on YouTube, you know, other, you know, just talking to people, oh, I will never sell this because I have a two and a half or 2.75% interest rate. But even million dollars equity in that duplex. That's Come on, man. Anything for you. I'm yeah. seeing that yeah. more and more often where somebody has high equity and they maybe didn't refinance previously because, you know, rates were stale for so long that it was like, ah, you know, if I didn't get three, maybe I got three and a quarter, or two, seven, five or whatever. So you just wrote it out. And I'm seeing that more now where, yeah, you've got, I have to think of one person in particular who's got a million dollars of equity in a property. Now all of a sudden could really use it. And it's like, well, maybe I can go get a second from the bank or this. And it's like, man, you thought it was crazy to tap into that four five, six months ago. Uh, would have been the right move. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, But we're hearing a lot of people licking their chops. So there's going to be buying opportunities. And we're even seeing it now. Some of the pr- purchase prices are coming in versus the list prices. So having that capital available, is it would be really meaningful, especially if you're a long-term hold and you believe that at in some point, rates will come back to uh, you know whatever it might be, five, four and a half, or whatever it might be. It might be a, a real reason to grab that cash. Mm-hmm. Joe, you had mentioned over this weekend, um, you know, some people, yeah, they they maybe wish they took out equity early this year, but you've had a handful of people last couple of weeks. Can you kind of share that story and those stats? Because I think that's very telling. Yeah, I have a broad breadth of clients, right? So from just regular homeowners to really sophisticated investors, and I have four of my top investors, independent guys, not partners, that are each taking out more than $500,000 of cash out of various properties in the form of a cash out refinance or a HELOC or a fixed rate second mortgage. And they want to have that cash ready to go to purchase properties in between Halloween and Christmas. And these are not related guys. They don't talk to one another. The only common denominator that I see is that I just happen to, you know, have a barometer on what each of them are doing. And these are smart guys. And it's, they know something I don't, or they know the same things that we do, that there's going to be buying opportunities and they want to have the cash ready. And if you're talking to like, you know, cash out refis on investments and seconds on investment, I mean, there's got to be like, what, seven, eight, nine, for a second on Cash investment? out second on an investment property to 80%, it's like eight and a half to 9%. Okay. Yeah. Cash and out. S- mm-hmm. Wow. And so this, I, I thank you for sharing those numbers. And of course, like, you know, always check with Joe and your lender because those rates change. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Yeah, all that <laughs> center stuff. But it's very tongue because, I mean, those interest rates, like, I don't think anyone could imagine a year ago pulling money out that. But these are, I, I know some of these people, they are smart people, um, sophisticated investors. They're borrowing money at eight or 9% because they can earn a much higher return than that. And that's an important factor to look at. It's not just your borrowing costs, but what are you getting with that? Can I, I can borrow 10%, make 100%, I'll do it all day long. All day long. Can I add one thing? So you said a year or two ago, they wouldn't have looked at this. A year or two ago, it wasn't available because when rates are at 2%, nobody's going to offer a second mortgage because it's higher risk, right? Oh. You're not going to offer a second mortgage at 5%. Why would I do that? I'll just keep my money in the bank if I'm a lender, right? So now interest rates have increased to the point that banks can actually make a spread on second mortgages and we can lend to... Uh, investors up to that 80%, right? Because now there's enough meat on the bone, basically. And the second uh, seconds on investments is for single families, single family or duplex, Uh, single family, condo, townhome, and up to duplex. You cannot do 
uh, three or four units. Yeah. So some good options out there. I've looked at like a couple months ago with Joe. Definitely worthwhile to look at because it's a great way to pull out money mm-hmm. and you can still make the spread on the returns there. What's that just quickly, uh, the rough cash out rate for investor one through four unit or, or one to two? Um, 6.75. So it's really not thirty that, years right now. It's not that much higher than uh, than the owner occupied. Yeah. Typically a three quarter to one point spread and, and it's not quite there. Yeah. Wow. You're right. Okay. Now, uh, Jenny was actually, as we're getting with the podcast, uh, we always, you know, banter and chit chat for a few minutes. And Jenny asked a very interesting question. Jenny, can you uh, start that conversation again? Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot lately, just, you know, with the environment that's been going on right now, is there ever a point where leveraging is actually disadvantageous to the investor? Just considering, um, you know, obviously you can always, tailor your leverage. You can put more cash down. You can, um, you know, do that sort of thing to, to kind of balance it. But how do you figure out where kind of the line in the sand is for leveraging a property um, with the caveat that you're going to hold it for 30 years? We're not pretending that it's underwater or anything like that. Lenders? Yeah. Uh, no, you go this, first with that let's one. Hear it. These questions are sometimes difficult to answer from what will get you the absolute best return on investment versus how you sleep at night. And I think that's ultimately where the answer comes for each person. So right now, when I'm buying properties, I'm less worried about them cash flowing because I've got a whole portfolio of properties to hedge for that. So on an individual property, I I could effectively over leverage it to maybe not cash flow now because I have other properties that I'll hedge. And my goal is to hold them long-term. So assuming that you're always going to hold them long-term, probably the, lever- the only thing that would hurt you in leverage is the ability to cash flow. If you can carry negative cash flow with your global global position, whether that's high income earner, other properties to cover that, or maybe we'll get into a little bit later of dropping a, a daycare uh, as a service, um, <laughs> as a liability. Uh, I, I think those are what you have to measure. So, and maybe the details of that will help with this conversation. But if you can buy really great properties that don't cash flow well, maybe that's uh, as a house hack or a high leverage uh, loan. Sure, that could make sense now. The value of a property only matters two times, whether you're selling it or refinancing it, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a long-term hold investor. The payment though, to your point on the leverage piece is how how negative can you go? And I would never suggest somebody builds their business that way, but I think it could be um, once you're sophisticated enough, you can make sense of it. Yeah, I agree 100%. And so I think where leverage can work against you, which you said this one doesn't count, but I'm going to say it anyways, if values go down and you need to sell, uh, but let's exclude that. Number two, if you're not cash flowing and you don't have another source of income, right? If you're buying this property and you're counting on it making a hundred bucks a month and all of a sudden you have a vacancy and now it's losing $500, a $1,000 a month and you don't have another source to pay for that, that would be bad. Um, and then number three, I really like what you said, uh, Travis, about needing to sleep at night. Because what does the spreadsheet say? Spreadsheet says, put as little down as possible every single time. Leverage, right? leverage, 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 right? Now I get that. I understand that. But I'm the antithesis of that. I don't leverage anything highly because I'm in a fully commission-based job. My income goes up and down. And so I look at it as a global standpoint of, hey, I'm really lowly leveraged. So my risk, if you look at my real estate portfolio, seems out of whack. But if you look at my overall global financial picture, I'm fully appropriately leveraged. Um, So I think 
Jenny, this is a great question. And I think it comes back to how do you sleep at night? Um, and I sleep pretty well at night, not having a ton of loans. Yeah, I have. I own a handful of properties free and clear, and it is the worst return on equity possible. But I've never met somebody with a free and clear property that regretted it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, and there's always the opportunity to leverage it. So maybe on the flip side, if you were newer in the business, you had a really solid game plan and you, and you have good reserves, uh, I you could go negative. Um, I'd, I'd want something to hedge that though, whether it's income from other properties or a very stable uh, income, you know, nurse, teacher, or something like that. Maybe not a commission-based or a brand yeah. new real estate agent or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I was actually, this was uh, probably last month or so ago, and I was talking to one of our clients, you know, financial background, and really got into a lot more like technical in the weeds on numbers and really getting into more like, hey, what's the 10-year treasury doing? What's, a, what's inflation doing? A lot of his perspective, because he was one to put down, you know, 20, 25% really max out the leverage on an investment loan. And he was factoring a lot in the inflation on there. And he's like, I don't care if it's a negative 3% cash on cash return. So it loses, um, I don't know, 50 bucks a month or something. He had other source income and other assets that could, you know, from a global point of view, offset it. He was more from the perspective, like, you know what? I got that 100,000 and change. I'm more worried about preserving that, Mm -hmm. uh, not losing it to inflation through you know, leaving the savings account or, yeah. you know, buying a, a lower return asset. He's like, yeah, I can withstand a couple negative dollars in cash flow, but now I have that money in asset that historically performs very, very well with inflation. And that's one of the points where I haven't been able to quantify it quite yet, but like, uh, I understand the concepts on there. I don't know how like quantify, but it's a very interesting uh, point he brought up because it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And that comes back from just the overall bigger point of view. And he had a very beautiful spreadsheet built out to help him figure what was right for him. Yeah, yeah. The only struggle I have with that, and I've heard that argument before, is like, it's better than in the bank because now you're losing whatever it is, 8% a year due to inflation. I don't think the true inflation number touches everyone the same. So that might not be the best measure, although it's a, it's a measure, is that real estate prices are coming down or at least plateauing right now. So I think that argument, like if you sat down in hindsight and did that in 2012, like obviously you should yep. buy real estate and, and wait, right? But I don't know that today that holds true the same. And I'd rather, everybody's uh, position is different, but if I had a hundred grand in the bank sitting there today and I'm losing 8% annually uh, due to purchasing power. So next year I have $92,000 worth of purchasing power, but I have really good reserves and the ability to strike. I mean, 8% or excuse me, $8,000 on an 8% uh, decline in purchasing power versus a 10% decline in real estate prices at an average of 700,000, which is better. So I think that what's interesting to math, with math is that you can tell any story you want, oh, yeah. right? As long as you you have the path you want to get to. Well, in two years, we'll know the right answer. That's a great uh, thing, yeah, right? right, right. Yeah. Check back in yeah, two years, we'll tell you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I agree, but do, do you realistically expect like a 10% price decrease? Um, no. I know we debate this in the past. Yeah, no, no and yes. And the reason I say it like that is because uh, 10% on what? I remember meeting a guy in the spring and I said, look, I'm buying a, looking to buy a couple more rental properties. I would pay market, but I just can't get anything at market. And he said, well, what's market? And I thought, oh, wow. You know, because everyone was what quote unquote overpaying what people were willing to pay. Yep. I just got a contract from a borrower yesterday that he got the property for 10% less than list. That does not mean it was 10% off, but is there some percentage off of what that house would have mm-hmm. sold for two years ago? Probably. So I don't think real estate values will decline by 10% overall, but I think in some of the areas that we're looking to buy, uh, do I think between the October, Halloween, and Christmas that there's going to be an opportunity to grab something in Green Valley Ranch uh, at 10% under list? Maybe. Yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. 
I don't think you're going to see the overall market decline by 10%, 15%. I don't even think you're going to see the market decline by 5%, but I do think there's going to be pockets. Right. Yes. There's going to be pockets We're where people overpaid $25,000, $50,000, $200,000. Those things, I don't think prices are going to decrease, but I think the aggressive offer strategies and aggressive list prices are going to go back to normal. And you're going to list your property and sell it at list price, maybe after one or two price reductions. And we're seeing that in the stats to go back to the stats right now. I saw it on here just a second ago. Things are not selling at a premium. The average discount, um, not premium last month was 0.6%. So if you listed a property- Last August, it was 2.5. That's right. Last August, it was 2.5 premium. Yep. Now we're at 0.6% discount. So you might get a little bit off of list price. Yeah. But I think that also comes back to sellers getting realistic with where they're going to list their properties, right? And I right. think we're, I mean, we're already seeing that now in the market with price reductions and, you know, having to get back to what is reality again. And I think that that's going to be the biggest factor right now is getting sellers to be realistic about, you know, where they're going to list their properties yeah. so that they can get them moved and they're not going to sit on the market for 30 or 45 days. Uh, back to your, your spreadsheet analysis of inflation. I earlier said no one's ever regretted having a free and clear property. And also no one's ever regretted owning a piece of real estate for 20 plus years, right? So as long as it's a long-term investment, uh, I don't think there's a wrong answer. Yeah, and I, I, you know, it, it's very situational. For you sure. know, that $100,000 was not his reserves. Sure. It was not his vacation money. It was just, hey, I, he's got a lot of capital, a lot of liquid capital. Where do you start deploying yeah. it? And his approach was like, hey, put some in now, buy some later. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like a, hey, this is the one move I can make yeah. for the next year. He had you know, quite a few options. So he's dollar cost averaging. Essentially, yeah. yeah. One thing smart I to heard me. someone say is the best thing you can do to invest in an inflationary economy or a recessionary economy is to keep doing what you were doing. That's right. And it's like, well, as long as you know real estate, you understand rental real estate, or if you really know the stock market, just keep doing what you were doing. I can say the best thing for what Chris Lopez does is when I have the money, I go invest it no matter what the market is doing, as right. long as everything else makes sense. Because anytime I try to time the market... <laughs> You would think it it'd be works. a 50 50, like I'd get, you know, right half the time, wrong half like the time. wrong 95% of the time. I, I, don't, yeah, I don't get that stat. So I don't, I've given up on that. I just, I love the DC, the dollar cost averaging strategy yeah. for stocks, um, for real estate investing. I just, I have so much belief in it as long as like all the other fundamentals and bigger picture stuff makes yeah, sense. Make sure you don't lose, lose, you know, picture of your base and everything you've got going on and make sure you've got reserves. And, you know, when you're ready, Make a move. Yeah. Uh, speaking of negative cash flow, didn't you guys have a situation that we were discussing previous to recording? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So one of our clients, he actually asked me, he's like, is this going to be on the podcast? I was like, no, nah, I don't know. Maybe. And that was just yesterday. And so, yes, here we <laughs> are. <laughs> Good news. Um, so we've got a, a terrific client, great couple, and they found a duplex um, down in uh, South Denver that works out great for them. And they got it under contract. Well, let, let, let's back up. The best part yeah. about this was that we've been working with these clients now for multiple years, multiple properties, working on their strategy. We had something in place and it was kind of one of those things where, hey, we're gonna sit tight for a little while. We're saving up some cash. We're gonna do some remodeling on the current house we have. And there's one one particular part of town that they wanna stay in. And there's some properties in, in, part, in this part of town in this neighborhood that are all duplexes. And it's kind of been one of their, you know, pipe dreams is to be able to buy one of these and something that's been on their list and kind of, Hey, you know, when the time's right, we're going to do this, but we're staying here for the next year or two in the house we have lo and behold, guess what comes on the market last week, the property they want the property they want. And the one they drive by every single day. And at that point it was like, Oh man, scramble mode. Can we make this work? Mm-hmm. And that's when the phone calls start flying around and Joe made it happen. 
Yeah, I mean, these guys are they're in great position because they're not over leveraged. Back to Jenny's question. Yep. They have a lot of equity in several other properties. And, you know, they called up and said, hey, we think we can get some cash out of this. What do you think? I looked at it pretty quickly mm-hmm. and said, yep, this will actually work. You know, we need to get it under contract, figure out your final price. And then we're going to need to sit down. Um, and I asked Preston, I said, hey, get us a longer contract because we've got to take some cash out of these other properties. Okay. Takes a, f- a lot few- more moving parts. Going yeah, on takes right a little now. bit of time yep. to move the chess pieces around the board. Um, but I met with him yesterday, we're going to take equity out of two other properties, buy this property. They're going to be into this for zero cash out of pocket. Now they're taking equity from other places, right? They're borrowing, but truly no cash out of their savings account to buy this pretty sizable duplex. Yep. I mean, it's a, it's a really nice property. It's, you know, three beds on both sides, basements. I mean, it's, it's going to be a really great property for them. And I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And what I want to highlight here is, you know, they, they had their plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had a, a good curveball. Hey, this happened now. We went here. We we pivoted, or they pivoted, I should say. But they've had they've been building every single year a solid financial foundation. Yep. Um, they were able to act quickly. They know their numbers, know their buy box, and they're able to make that quick decision. They're using some of the the newer ways to pull out money from some of their properties to go out there and do a, I'll say more creative financing mm-hmm. to go out there and help them buy a house hack, which is very very unique in how it's all layering together. And one of the things going back to like the global view and just, you know, cash from other assets and just everything's unique is why are they okay with taking on some more debt right now, Preston? I mean, one of the things that, you know, they expressed to us was like, hey, yeah, we know we're going to lose a little bit of cash flow, but for them in their current place in life, um, you know, they're at a point now where their young children are in school and they don't have to pay for daycare anymore, which was, you know, as you guys know, really, really expensive. Mm-hmm. It's so, a mortgage payment. Yeah, it's literally it's a mortgage, mortgage payment. payment. Yeah, yep. and so they're able to too. take that, you know, cash flow <laughs> <laughs> uh, from what they were paying uh, for daycare and use that to help cover any negative cash flow or any reduced cash flow from what we're doing on the lending side of things to make it work to buy this new property. Yeah, very smart individuals. I'm a huge fan of both of them. Um, and they're just the textbook case study, right? They have not made any crazy moves. They continue to save money. They're not living, you know, way outside their means. They're just doing all the right things and they're going to be really wealthy. And I mean, they're wealthy now, but they're going to be really wealthy in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, Just super proud of them. So, I mean, we wanted to highlight this example because this is a, you know, it's a, a very unique way how it all came together, but it's also very, a good case day for people to keep in mind is yes, while the economy is changing, Rates are going up. You read the headlines. You get depressed every day when you read them. But you got to stay true to data, stay true to your plan, and stay true to what's right for like your investing situation and your financial situation. It all comes down to situational, you know, uh, situational awareness. Four years ago, uh, if the market conditions were they were now, very different position for me, like mm-hmm. most people. Now, as I think Travis was talking about earlier, he's got some cash flowing properties. He can take off, you know, take some more interest rate risk or take some like native cash flow risk. I'm in the same position. So it's always important to look at how your property is performing and your current overall portfolio. Then you make the right decision, not just based off of, you know, headlines out there and podcast. For sure. That's right. Yep. So uh, let's see, going through here, um, (laughs) Travis, you were talking about, I know you're doing a lot of deals in in multi-units. Sure. And as a refresher, give everyone a background about kind of the type of lending that you do at Renovo, because that feeds into a lot of the deals that you're facilitating. Yeah. So the type of uh, money that we provide, it's all direct private money. So 
we're typically financing, I'd say 80 to 90% loan to cost, uh, generally capped at somewhere between 70 to 75% loan to value. And the pricing is kind of between bank and, and hard money. Um, typically, uh, the avatar is somebody who's an operator, has done a handful of deals in the last few years, uh, verifiable. And I'm still seeing people buy good properties, um, some in Southern Colorado, some right here uh, in the metro area. And what's interesting is that as prices have kind of changed, and we talked about pockets, uh, cash flows are there. And um, I, I don't want to give away all the secrets, but there's some spots that are really cash flowing right now, some of which um, Jenny's operating in. And so uh, it's it, for the sophisticated investor or the, the one that can, you talked about buy box and understanding your business, uh, very interesting. So still seeing some opportunities with the bridge stuff where somebody would go and buy it, you know, fix it up, whether that be turning units, turning leases, um, and then going for a refinance. Uh, and also seeing people just buy the properties outright in a long-term loan that we also provide on the DSCR side, the debt service coverage ratio loans, um, which are good if you don't have a great global picture, but the property uh, performs well. And so those rates are probably a point-ish higher than, um, than conventional investor rates but could be a really good fit for the right person. Seeing less cash out, of course, because most people who are going to cash out likely did or have opportunities with seconds or, or lines of credit. Um, but the buy, fix, refinance on bigger buildings still generally works. Um, and what a lot of people are missing and Preston touched on it previously is rents. Rents are going up. Yep. I, somebody told me the other day, he felt really felt like they were starting to plateau. And I don't know what that was based on. I'm not seeing that in my own portfolio. I'm not seeing that when I search for rents. Um, affordability, I think, could be challenging. But um, I guess the, the long answer to your question is that uh, bridge, uh, fix and flip, new construction, that type of financing. And I'm seeing people either exit with a resale or with a refinance into cash flowing properties. Have you noticed that just, you know, the last few months as the market has changed, any like uh, differences in people, like projects, people putting new construction projects on the hold, or are they ramping them up, ramping them down, saying about the same? I'd say saying about the same. Uh, keep it in mind that kind of our borrower avatar is somebody who's an operator. I mean, this isn't like they just came out and decided they were going to do a, a new construction project. So this is their business, right? Um, what's interesting is that uh, you're probably seeing uh, new home sales. They're they're offering huge concessions because they don't want to touch the purchase prices. They need those to continue to appraise. Um, an individual builder can be a little more nimble. Uh, and also the price of material starting to come down. And as these bigger builders are going to build less, I do see some labor savings too because people are going to need work. More and more often I'm seeing in the Facebook fix and flip groups, people posting for work, right? Drywallers, plumbers, that type of thing, which wow. we haven't seen that for a while. So the market is slowing down a little bit. Uh, I think the the market size uh, or transactions as pure numbers in investment real estate is slowing down and people are needing places to work. Uh, I actually am getting ready to buy a flip later this week uh, down in South Denver. And we met a contractor there last week. We said, when can you have somebody here? He said, Monday. Yeah, tomorrow. <laughs> I, I said, well, we're not closing until Thursday. <laughs> so that would be a problem. But um, the availability, and, and I just had a client who we funded a new construction deal for down in the Springs. He was late to start because he needed to change some stuff with the foundation. It took some time, but his lumber price from when he bid it in November of last year when he closed the loan to when he actually purchased it a few months ago was uh, like 40% lower. Oh, wow. So 
uh, we're starting to see some prices come down on materials. Supply chain is is cleaning up a little bit on that stuff. Appliances, that's windows, cabinets are much more available. And this is a like a fix and flip that you're buying personally? Correct. Can you yeah. give a just rough kind of like game plan and numbers on that? Sure. So uh, buying it. So a wholesaler had it. Um, they had a buyer locked up. Something happened with him. He fell out. This is somebody he created a relationship with. He called me and said, hey, we got it, but it needs to close next week. I know you've been looking. I said, you know, he sent me the numbers. I said, cool, let's do it. Uh, purchase price is around 450 construction budget, probably 80 might stretch up to, to 90. So um, more than just cosmetic, it sounds like. Yeah. So houses, it's not wrecked, but it needs a kitchen. We'll finish a good portion of the basement probably needs a roof exteriors in good shape. Uh, and, but you know, everything's just more expensive, right? And we're going to move the master, uh, expand the master, uh, be- bathroom to make it bigger, make the other bathroom smaller, uh, just to make it function a little more with today's expectations. And I think that if we went on the market today, we'd probably go on at 700. So all in at 550, go on at 700. Um, so there's some margin there. Uh, but also I'm underwriting it at 650 sales price, you know? Um, and is that enough? I don't know. Anything above that is gravy. But uh, I think that having meat on the bone is good. And I was talking to Joe about it over the weekend. And he said, what's the worst case scenario? Which I hate to look at that in <laughs> hindsight, but uh, obviously have the ability to refinance and, and hold it if we have to. And we'll end up with a four or five uh, bedroom, three bath house in, in a solid part of town that would likely probably rent for 3,500 or I might touch four grand. I mean, four grand. rents are crazy. Yeah. yeah so. Make sure you appraise it before you put That's it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. That might be for another day, that deal tip. But. So one thing I want to talk about is just kind of like, because uh, I know Jenny's already done a few uh, doing more bird out, more burr deals down south, if I can say that correctly. It's chilly in the springs. <laughs> <laughs> Buy, rehab, rent, repeat. Refinance. I screwed. I screwed up those R's. So yeah, well, just though. I mean, they were in there. Just, yeah. You know. Don't worry about the order. You know what yeah. I'm talking about. Different here. order. <laughs> uh, but I know Jenny. I want to kind of ask you, Jenny, what you're seeing down there. And I know. Uh, I mean, you do a lot of the, the fix and flip financing, mm-hmm. Joe. I know you do a lot of the takeout financing. I would love to kind of get your guys' perspective as if you're seeing some trend shift, especially like Joe and Travis. You guys have been around the industry for a while. What's the consensus on like the opportunity to start doing more burrs up and down the front range? Start with Jenny. Yeah. yeah. So we've had a client or two that's been able to pull off um, some bird deals down in Pueblo. I, w- I won't say Colorado Springs is quite there yet, but um, we the, the one that I'm most excited to hear about is um, we have an investor that's doing a fourplex burr, which I think she will be able this to, one's gonna be to awesome. pull off. Yeah, she, I think she's going to be able to pull off a perfect burr um, in Pueblo on a fourplex. So that's pretty amazing. Um, I would say there's still few and far between. Um, you definitely have to search, but um, the burrs that we've been having uh, investors do in Pueblo, they've been MLS deals. So, I mean, it's just kind of knowing what you're looking for, um, you know, and we can definitely help people search for that opportunity. And then, um, you know, my whole take on it is have your, your takeout financing in place before. I think you need to definitely budget for, um, interest rate risk, um, cost of construction and material risk. There's just a lot going on. And then, you know, of course, unfortunately your price might not hit what you're thinking, um, right now. So I think if you just, you know, go into it knowing that you have a lot of different factors working against you. Um, you know, I think that it's still a pretty viable opportunity um, for people. Now, Joe, I know, um, you know, 
you've been a lender here for for many years now, and one of like the the niches you carved out is you specialize on the takeout financing for burrs. I know mm-hmm. a lot of traditional lenders have a hard time doing that, or mm-hmm. they would drop the ball, and an investor would call you and help you know save the deal the eleventh hour. Mm-hmm. So you've been through different market cycles of that. What are you seeing in terms of like any takeout financing on burrs? Yeah. So right now there is a unique opportunity because there is a disparity between list price. And now that I know there's also a disparity on construction price, which is positive, and there's a disparity on appraisals. So let me give you guys a quick example, and I'm going to get the numbers a little wrong. I didn't prep for this, but I think I can remember it off the top of my head. So I had a client just recently bought a property for $195. Um, It was half a duplex in uh, Westminster, Thornton area, Um, paid $195. They put 35 into it. So they were into it for 230. They thought it would appraise for 275. So they would be getting a new loan for approximately 180, you know. So they'd be into it for basically their renovation costs plus or minus a little bit. Partial burr, though. Yeah, exactly. And that's what they were looking at. Hey, we're not looking for no money. They're realistic operators. We're not looking for no money down. This is a way we can get in and be into this property for approximately 10%. Okay. Well, we get the property appraised and this closed three weeks ago. Any guesses what the appraisal came in at? Over I'm guessing 300. higher. 340. All right. Oh. $340,000, wow. which gave them enough equity to pay off their hard money loan, which included all their renovation costs. They were into this property for truly $0. So you have a disparity right now that appraisals are coming in higher because what are we looking at? Comps from six months ago. You can get properties at list, maybe a little bit under, and construction costs are coming down. This right now, could be a really good time to do this. But don't get tripped up looking for no money down deals. If you find a low money down deal, that's going to be good enough. And every now and then, you're going to get a grand slam appraisal. You're going to get something that works out in your favor. Sometimes you're going to get things that don't work out in your favor. Be prepared to invest some money. That's a great way to make money without having to put 25% down plus renovation costs. Yeah, agree with everything you're saying, still seeing it. Uh, One thing that's interesting is that the birth strategy was uh, long driven by using hard money to get that best leverage. But now that you might have some money into it, I'm seeing more people use like our type of finance where you might have some equity in on the front, but then you'll have no equity in on the refinance, right? Mm -hmm. Or potentially it could still go cash out. Say that again. So historically, you would do the birth strategy with a hard money lender at, you know, higher points, higher fees with hopefully with no money down. But now, you know, we have financing like what well, I can provide. Let's say you have to put 10% down on loan to cost. And so, as Joe said, be prepared to invest some money mm-hmm. and maybe it doesn't work out perfectly. So now you can get a lower origination and lower rate on the actual acquisition and rehab loan. And then when you go for the refinance, everything still stands the same. If you're going to work conventional, you could pull the cash out, maybe have a small, uh, slightly higher um, loan amount or excuse me, rate for that. But there's this, uh, instead of investing it on the refinance side, uh, you could invest it up front and either keep it in or take it out potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, still seeing that work, but I started to approach it a little differently in that like, okay, maybe I can't bump it at 30% equity, 25% equity, but if I buy it and fix it, can I get a 15% discount on the property into mm-hmm. my total investment? So it doesn't need to be perfect, but at least if you have limited funds to work with, maybe you could do three instead of one or something like that if you could stretch it out appropriately. The last thing I'll say, I don't think that strategy is right for newbies. I see a lot of brand new people that say, hey, I got $25,000. First thing I want to do is a burr property. And I'm like, man, that is risky. 
Yes. You know, I think that that still works for experienced people. Your experience, Jenny, your experience, you've done renovations. If you're brand new and you're listening and you're like, hey, man, I got $25,000. This is what I want to do. And there's, we can show you spreadsheets and PowerPoints and all these different ways you can do it with no money down. Um, but I don't think it's for trying new to people. take on a manager project like that right out of the gate. Not not something you want to do. Well, yeah. especially, I mean, this is, it's a volatile time. Like sure. there's a good chance you're underwriting. I mean, your, your takeout price might be lower. Mm-hmm the takeout interest rate might be higher. Like those things move the needles big time and get mm-hmm. people in, in a, in a, you know, in a bad spot for sure. I totally agree with you. I think that's more for, you know, seasoned investors who also have some healthy cash reserves that, Hey, if the market punches them in the face. They can handle the black eye. That's right. All right. So everyone, this was a, a really fun podcast. I mean, great takeaways from out there is to, you know, look for some opportunities here next couple months. The world is not ending. Some of the strategies are coming back and play like the Burr strategies. So there are opportunities out there. There's deals out there. And anyone has a question out there, reach out to anyone on the podcast here. Jenny with Envision Advisors down south does a great job finding properties. Preston up here in Denver. Of course, talk to Joe if you need help with like doing some longer-term financing and now some second positions in HELOCs. Mm-hmm. Travis has just a plethora of different type of finance options that direct private financing he does. So if you guys need a team, need an expert, reach out to any of this podcast. We love talking about this. We're all investors and we are all in here for the long run. So everyone, thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Chris. Thanks, Chris.